The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm with my colleague Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Samantha Corbin of Corbin and Kaiser. And she's a policy guru and an activist and was very, very uh, much involved in the Me Too movement, was a lead organizer in the Me Too movement here in California. So Samantha, welcome and thank you for coming. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, John. So we we were chatting about, we got to get Samantha on the show because um, this Dear California Staffers um, entity that just popped up on Instagram is getting a lot of attention in the capital. It grew, I think, uh, from 1,000 to 1,400 to 1,600. We did a story we posted yesterday and it had, I, uh, I think, had grown 400 in one day. Um, and it's, it's over 3,000. As we, as we go to press, John, it's over 3,000. Okay, over 3,000. Okay. And it's what it is, is people who work in the capital, uh, apparently this is what it is, what it looks like, have a chance to complain about their working conditions, it could be sexual harassment, handling uh, the way they're treated by their bosses, hour issues, um, salary issues, just about everything. Have you? I, I know you've seen that. You had a couple comments about it. What's your thought on that? I have seen it. I have seen it. It was actually first brought to my and, and our attention at the We Said Enough team because um, a number of people asked if it was us. So I will say, number one, it is not us um, for good or bad. Um, I, I do not know who's running the account. I, you know, I think to start, I'm not surprised there is an anonymous account. When we when we launched We Said Enough, we were very careful to craft a way for feedback that preserved confidentiality. In fact, if to this day, if you email a story and through the We Said Enough forum, we don't know who you are. We don't have a way to go figure that out. Um, we didn't want to not only be personally responsible for maintaining confidentiality, but you can be subpoenaed, you can be hacked. You know, there's any number of ways that people can get kind of not sensitive data. Um, and so we took great legal precautions to make sure that we didn't end up exposing accidentally, you know, the data of someone and, and kind of a story that they shared with us. Um, but since that time, you know, it's been four years, a lot of the work that has been done in the state legislature, and, um, and we've been pretty vocal about this all along the way, hasn't really gotten there in terms of improving the climate in the capital hasn't really gotten there in terms of providing meaningful accountability and um, meaningful resolution for staff and for folks like me and the third house's lobbyist who've had issues. Um, and so given all of that, I'm not surprised to see that this has cropped up, right? That this sort of next wave of frustrated people, whether or not the, um, the individuals running the account are from the capital community or not, I can't speak to, but certainly people from the capital community are communicating with that account um, out of frustration for, you know, I, I think that's been building even before the 2017 Me Too launch. Did you notice uh, any of the comments? Uh, did they strike? Did you see any familiarity in some of the comments that you'd seen before? Uh, could some of the people who commented anonymously here be people may have sent uh, you folks, you know, information about their complaints that could be documented later if need be? Um, a little bit of both. So definitely there's some stuff that I've seen that's um, 
either not public or not confirmed that's been um, stated on that account. I can tell you that some people who have shared information with that account or the account itself have has disclosed information that did not come from victims, um, that was not public or was not corroborated, and in fact has led to phone calls from reporters and other people to those victims who did not want to be contacted because their information was sort of just vetted um, like it was Festivus, you know, on this account, even if it didn't include their name, it included enough details that folks thought, oh, I bet that's that person. Um, so more than I have seen folks that we have heard from um, expressing their own frustrations, I've actually seen folks share information um, that may not be entirely accurate and was not theirs to share, um, which is, you know, dangerous and hurtful to folks. I've noticed on that site, there's quite a bit of that. I have heard this. Can anyone chime in? There's quite a few of those. I mean, so for anyone that hasn't seen this site, the the process is that uh, these are all posted as Instagram stories, which generally uh, disappear after 24 hours, unless the administrator of the account sets them as, I think it's the term is highlights. And so they last longer. And so it is a... Uh, it's an interesting format to try to go through. So, of course, everyone I know is screen capturing them, as were we, you know, to kind of hold on to the more interesting ones. Uh, are quite a few comments that are just chiming in saying, I've heard this, or has anyone else heard this? Or can anyone tell me about this legislator or this staffer or this chief of staff or district office person uh, versus I was here, this happened to me? I mean, there is some of that as well. What happens if you don't screen capture them? They well, disappear. Uh, they, yeah. they disappear. So, and they move pretty fast, actually. I mean, I, I like to think I'm pretty quick handed on a cell phone, but I, I tried to screen capture one and was like, I give up. They, they do fly by it. It actually makes it really hard um, to even see the screen cap of a comment that they're sharing to validate that the comment they're paraphrasing says what the paraphrasing says it says. Right. So you have something that's like in five point font up in the upper left corner that you can't read. That's there for two seconds and a pull quote from that, allegedly. Um, maybe I'm old. It was hard for me to. Read. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting because people, of course, are all wondering who this is. And, and I saw someone uh, say, oh, well, you know, it's the, it's kids today. And I thought this is not kids because they don't seem like the, the administrators of the account definitely have a first day on Instagram vibe because I don't think they really seem to understand some of the technology. I noticed that they posted and said, Hey, we're not sure why some of our stories are, are gone. And it's like, well, you should know that stories disappear after 24 hours. Yeah. Um, so I would say you're, they're probably not young people. And if it is a staffer who is no longer there, which is uh, their description of themselves is that they are staffer or staffers who are no longer in the building, that probably wouldn't be a terrifically young person. So uh, it's, it is interesting. We did, you know, full disclosure, we reached out to them and said, hey, would you be interested in being on the podcast? We'll preserve your anonymity. And they said, uh, hey, maybe someday, but right now we're too busy, which I imagine they probably are. Yeah, I know when we launched the We Said Enough website, um, I mean, and, and, and it may be the same for them, we got national and international responses right out the gate. I mean, we were getting 1,500 emails, phone calls a day, easy. Um, and I, uh, the volume is still high four years later. And one thing that I noticed when I looked at the account initially is that it follows 
a series of other accounts in other states. So it, it follows a very narrow suite of people. And all of those accounts just happen to be um, sort of dear staffer accounts in other areas, you know, 10 plus other states. And I thought that was fascinating because it felt at least, and this was very early on, like they knew about and were it, at a minimum interfacing with or copying or coordinating with multiple states all at the same time to sort of do this. And that I thought was fascinating. There's been uh, coverage in DC over the last couple of weeks. I, there was a story I saw in Politico. There was a story in Forbes, believe it or not. There was a story in a uh, publication called Latino Reb- Rebels, which I'm not familiar with, but they all talked about dear white staffers, the blog uh, or the Instagram site in DC. And that has, according to this story, had 80,000 followers and it sort of spawned possibly spawned um, other sites similar to that across the country. I guess Tennessee, Vermont are two states that come to mind. Right. Is it organic? Is it coordinated? Who knows? But there, there are a lot of them. Um, you know, and I, I think that does happen, right? People see something that, that works, that gets attention, and they want to get attention as well. Um, you know, my in the first couple of days, my thinking was, well, is this to revisit sort of the workplace conduct unit in the state, and which needs to be done? Um, and it increasingly, you know, as stories have come in and they're sort of like, Hey, how about this legislator? They're a jerk, right? You know, it's, it's become more like festivus for the capital community and, and things <laughs> increasingly, you know, seem to be leaning to, you know, the focus being around unionization. So whether or not that was the original intent of the account or is sort of the manifestation of people's responses over the last few days, that does certainly seem to be where they're leaning. Steve. Yeah, we had a Go ahead. Will Chuck, one, one of our reporters, uh, did a story, and and that was definitely his take: is that it seemed to be, it seemed to have a sort of a unionization focus. And I noticed that when it first started, it seemed like that was a minimal number of comments were related to that. But as time's gone on, it seems like that's been a more consistent theme. Um, now, whether or not that's just you know, the conspiracy theorist in me is always wondering how many of these people are legitimately staffers and how many people, how many of these comments are people who are simply have an ax to grind. Uh, you know, the, the immediate thing I thought is like, gosh, if I was a Republican and I wanted to collect Apple research, you know, two thirds of the legislature is Democrat. So you're probably going to get mostly Democrats. Uh, so I wondered if maybe this was something, you know, some Jim Brulte was behind all this, but. Uh, I, I, I'm a similar conspiracy theorist, right? The Dem convention is coming up. There are some progressive candidates who may not be, you know, perceived as progressive enough by activists in the field. And they seem to be at the center of a lot of comments. Um, you know, I mean, either way, it is it is very political and, and we live in a political town. This is um, one of the reasons why at least, you know, our team, as we've talked about, these issues has tried to avoid what we call Twitter justice, um, or in this case, Insta justice, where, you know, we're not, we're calling for due process and transparency and accountability and structures that prevent bad behavior um, not necessarily, you know, figuratively drawing and quartering people in the court of public opinion. Um, but again, in the absence of a functioning system, like a workplace conduct unit that folks are comfortable with, that is accountable and that is actually working, you know, people are going to get frustrated. They're going to do what they're going to do. 
You know, and to talk about something you brought up earlier, this is a question for you, John, uh, with your background in journalism and having you know worked at the AP and and Orange County Register, et cetera. What sort of legal exposure do the people running this site have? I mean, they're posting these posts, which are totally not vetted, which they say in their description, we don't know that any of these are valid, uh, but they're hosting them, even if they do disappear after 24 hours. John, can you talk about that at all? You you and I have talked about that a little bit, and I think you're much better versed on it than I am. Well, you know, I mean, obviously it's hard to say, but if you're to the extent that you're criticizing public officials, uh, a person of the public, is it's much harder for that person to demonstrate um, that he or she is the target of a deliberate you know, libel attempt or slander attempt or defaming attempt. Uh, they're in the public domain. And so they're basically bigger and easier targets than somebody in the private, you know, in the private domain. So that, that's one thing. You know, another thing is very few. There are some, though, I noticed, uh, like in your screenshots you sent me, there were very few that were actually identified by name on either side. Uh, the person who was being complained about, yes, some cases that person was, but clearly the person doing the complaining was not. So to target one particular person, you know, if you're a public official to target that person with a lawsuit, I think would be very, very difficult. I think you'd need transparency on both sides. And clearly, of course, this doesn't have it. Now, one thing is filing a suit. If you're a legislator or, or a chief of staff and you feel that you've been named and defamed by this site, you could go after the site and maybe during the course of a trial, during discovery, you could find out who's running what. I don't think you could find out who's contributed what, even though the technology is there for somebody to sift through the, the addresses, you know, the URLs or something, or the, you know, IP addresses of people who have sent them uh, comments. I, you know, that I don't know. Barring that, I don't see any legal recourse right now. Attorney might have a, you know, completely different take on it, but I just don't see any legal action right now. Well, I would just add to that. There certainly are people and, and maybe, you know, in a legal opinion, they do fall in public domain, but there are certainly people who were called out by name thus far who are not elected officials, right? They're administrative staff to the legislature, you know, junior staff, senior staff, they themselves are not um, public or elected officials, so to speak, and certainly have been called out by name. Yeah, that was kind of what I was thinking of some of the chiefs of staff uh, and uh, the district staff, et cetera, have been have named. And I, you know, I'm just not familiar enough to know. But I think the key, the key that I found really interesting is that it, even if a lawsuit wasn't going to probably be successful, the discovery process might be the whole goal just to find out who's actually behind this. And I wonder if that's possible. Of course, with that would take money. Of course, your figure right now, Deborah Gravert and uh, Erica Contreras are probably being uh, told by their bosses to figure this out and shut it down. I mean, that would be my guess. I, you know, I haven't spoken. Yeah, I, th I thought that was interesting that the criticism was lobbed so heavily there, you know, as if, um, as if anyone acting in, as an, in an administrative staff executive sort of staff uh, in the legislature is acting autonomously and not at the direction of legislative leadership. That's just simply not the way it works. You know, one thing um, over the years, repeatedly we've heard comments like this constantly since the first day I came to Sacramento, this was going on in the Capitol. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly, well, Republicans and Democrats, mostly Democrats, more and more Democrats as we've gone forward because there are more of them, but it was both parties yeah. There, it was basically a failure 
of administrative and management controls as much as anything else and a failure of the personalities of the electeds running everything. I, but not a whole lot's happened. And I, I just can't help but think they don't want anything to happen. The people. Well, I think that's the, the point right there, right? I mean, I've, I've visited legislator, legislatures at their request outside of California to sit down and talk about these issues. And whether they're Republican or Democratic majority, the party in power, you know, if you're an elected leader for your body, right, you're the speaker of the house or you're whatever you are, you have an obligation to the people that have elected you to represent them, right? Just that's, that's what it is, how you stay in power. It's how you stay in legislative leadership. So you're not, there's a conflict. There's an inherent conflict there in holding your leadership post and protecting your membership um, and also holding your membership accountable for how they treat staff. And I think when you look at, we ask the question of like, can a legislature, can our legislature govern itself? They've already shown us, not just in California, but across the country over the last four years, how they govern themselves. And the answer is they either don't or they selectively do, right? The people they don't like, the people in the other party, um, the members that aren't preferred, the staffers that aren't popular, they might get held to account, but the rest, mm, questionable. Um, and I think that's going to be the case as long as you let a government entity govern itself, they're going to exempt themselves from that process like they do everything else. How does it work now? If, I'm a, if I was a staffer in the Capitol and I had a complaint um, about my working conditions or being harassed by my boss, who can I go to in the, you know, in the official line, the official uh, channel? How, how would I do that? Or do you have an idea? Yeah, I do. So it, it used to be pre um, the development of the Workplace Conduct Unit, which came out of the Me Too movement. It used to be that you had to go to staff um, who then reported to rules, which was basically legislative leadership, right? It's a committee of legislators. Um, and they sort of decided whether your case was worth investigating. Um, that's not a particularly transparent process. Again, we're putting legislators in charge of determining um, if their peers or their peer staff are problematic. Um, and there was no public accountability or reporting around that. After 2017, they developed the Workplace Conduct Unit, um, which has some improvements, but still a lot of problems. It's not truly independent. They basically created a unit that now still ultimately has to report its work out to the rules committee. So there's still this sort of the legislature controls their budget. The legislature decides who their staff is. They ultimately report back out to the legislature and the legislative rules committee can overrule the things that they do. And um, we had actually, it's still open now, we put out a survey for folks trying to get feedback um, on people's experience with that system, because anecdotally, we've heard a lot of problems about the new workplace conduct unit. We've been, I, I've been quoted in SACB and um, a number of other, uh, I think even Fox 40, maybe a couple other places um, talking about this. But basically what we're hearing from staff is there's no point in talking to them because they don't do anything. It, and there's lawsuits to this um, degree, right? They don't do anything. They take months and months to follow up. Um, you likely are likely to be hit with a retaliatory complaint, which if that anecdotally is true, would violate state whistleblower laws. So there, whether or not these all add up to the workplace conduct unit is problematic, is not transparent, is not doing its job, or at least is not doing the job the public thinks it should be versus protecting its you know, legislative membership. 
um, the trust from staff isn't there. I, I don't at this point um, know a staffer who would use that system. Do they make a regular report? Is a regular report without it disclosing the names, but say the So you can do that, um, but then the workplace conduct unit um, immediately seeks additional information to attempt to figure out who you are. So I know of at least two people who submitted anonymous complaints to work uh, to the WCU, to the workplace conduct unit, and then received letters from the unit to them personally at their homes in response to their anonymous complaint. Um, and basically said, sorry, we were able to figure out who you were. You're no longer anonymous. Um, you know, those type of things have a, have a chilling effect. Sure. Um, and, you, and you have to ask yourself if the desire is to make people feel comfortable to come forward and change the culture, why would the process be um, that, right? Given, given your experience with the We Said Enough movement, what do you think could be a solution? I mean, one solution proposed on this site is unionization of legislative staff, which to me seems like would be a difficult hurdle. Although, interestingly enough, I just saw that uh, Nancy Pelosi was asked about this in regard to the Dear White Staffers, and she said, hey, if, if they want to unionize, I'm 100% in favor of that, and I'll back whoever wants to do that, which is either A, shocking, B, uh, cynical, because she knows it'll ever happen. I'm not, I, I don't know enough about Washington politics to know which, but uh, even if that doesn't happen, what do you think would be a good solution to make a safer and more equitable uh, workplace at the Capitol? So I'll break it into two parts. First on the unionization question. Um, I, I'm, not sure they, I'm not sure how much unionizing would do in this context, different from Congress, because we do have um, a lot of boundaries in terms of what staff can be paid, right? There's constitutional implications. Like, I'm not sure we don't have to go back to the ballot box to negotiate how staff can be paid differently. So on the pay scale issue, um, I'm not sure that the legislature independently has the authority, even if they were negotiating with a union, to make big changes there. I actually think that's a voter issue. I could be incorrect. I don't have that in front of me, but I'm like 99% sure that that's unfortunately out of the hands of a bargaining unit, even if there was one. Um, number two, I, you know, 20 years in politics, you hear about all sorts of skeletons. I was always told that the major unions had all sort of thrown up their hands and said, we're not touching this. And, and maybe that's changed over the last few years. But I, I think um, given the political dynamics, it'd be very hard for um, one of the major unions to be involved in, in trying to unionize. And again, to what benefit if they can't even impact things like their benefits and salaries without going back to the ballot box. So, you know, the concept of unionization and do the staff deserve that level of protection and that level of empowerment, 100%. Are there other impediments that may actually require a ballot measure in order for them to be able to take full advantage of something like that? I believe there probably are. Um, number two, and, and there's a tie-in here, um, I, I have always believed, this is my personal opinion, it doesn't necessarily reflect others from We Said Enough, but I've not been shy about it since 2017, um, that the legislature was never going to um, govern itself on this issue, right? And, and as we started to see them try to create boxes around complaints, like that's not discrimination, that's sexual harassment. Well, maybe it's racial discrimination and sexual harassment. You know, oh, that's a toxic workplace complaint. No, it feels pretty racist, right? There's this sort of, as employers do, effort to carve out 
incidents into what are the most politically or legally expedient buckets for them. Um, I don't believe that this issue will be resolved and can be resolved without a ballot measure. Um, right now, even with the existing workplace conduct unit, it doesn't cover, for example, lobbyists or people in state offices. Um, it doesn't cover local government, where we still see regular problems, uh, even mayors, city council members and staff having the same behavior and then later becoming legislators. Um, in fact, I know of a few folks who were fired from the legislature for harassment and are now lobbyists and are lobbying the very same staff that they were fired for harassing. So there's a need for some externalization of this, both from a functionality and an accountability standpoint. Do you think a, a ballot initiative on this would fly? Who do you think would be the big supporters of this in terms of finances? That's a great question. And if there were people lining up to hand out cash to do a ballot initiative on this and I knew who they were, I'd have already filed one myself. Um, <laughs> I think that a lot of folks will acknowledge, gee, that's that's something we should do. And certainly- If you're listening, to- call Corbin and Kaiser right now. <laughs> candy. Yeah, if you are wealthy and you would like to actually have an accountable uh, legislative process for staff, um, I, I actually think what we need is almost something like the- auditor's office, right? Or, or um, underneath of the auditor's office, something that's truly independent, you can have confidential reporting and investigation, and the sort of recommendations and work around that can't be blocked or buffered or categorized in the most politically expedient way. Um, I think if there was a ballot initiative, it'd be really hard for people to oppose. Mm-hmm. Um, you think the state auditor actually, uh, this is a role, the state auditor, who's, who's you know, uh, I think led by the Joint Legislative Audit Committee. So maybe that person, former Wayne Howe, could get in there and uh, do some deed. I don't know. What do you think? Um, not under their current authority, no. At least not from multiple conversations I've had with attorneys who are also interested in this subject. Um, they do have the closest model, it seems like, in terms of existing investigatory authority, um, independence. And so even if it's not the auditor's office, there's some um, some things to glean from the authority and the scope of work that the auditor has that are that are unique to that office. Uh-huh. And if we were to build an entity um, via ballot initiative um, would be things at least I would recommend. And again, this is, I'm just talking out of turn. This is my personal opinion after four years of shenanigans. <laughs> Well, I know it's just something about the word auditor that chills me. If you know, <laughs> auditor, well, I, I actually, I've, you know, I, I, I am now, I won't say expert level, but I have done a deep dive on um, FPPC, um, Secretary of State, even CDTFA, the Department of Tax and Fee Administration and their investigatory authority. And the auditor is really the only one that, that has the full scope of independence to embark on this kind of work. So it would have to be something like that. Otherwise you'd just be, you'd be looking at a, the same problem in a different structure for more money. Well, one last question, uh, Samantha, do you think the Dear California Staffers is here to stay for a while or is it one of those flash in the pans in two weeks, we never even heard hear of it again? It depends. It depends on what they do next. If at any point, you know, someone feels that their personal story has been violated. Um, and as I mentioned, I've heard from victims who haven't come out publicly, but certainly felt that their information was misused um, in statements on that site. Um, if 
you know, someone is penalized, um, fired or otherwise because of perceived involvement of that site, um, those things will start to erode trust. And frankly, you know, what is the what? As in, where are they going? What are they doing? And at a certain point, if you're going to activate everybody and get them all fuzzed up and mad, and then you don't give them something to, to bite on, right? They move on. They'll move on to the next thing. And I, I suspect without um, a major effort around unionization or a ballot conversation or some illumination around who's in charge and what they're trying to do, it'll eventually evaporate because it just becomes, I don't know, what's a... Um, I don't know a, a polite way to say this. It, it becomes an S posting account. I'll just say it that way, right? It's 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 festivus. And so, you know, what is the what? And I, I think that's a question for whoever's organizing to grab onto and, and think about next. Right. Well, fair enough. Thank you so much. And we are now going to move in to who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And Samantha's going to join us. So uh, some people do, some people don't. We thought, ah, great. Thank you for joining us. We came up with, we came up with Elon Musk. Uh, the latest is Department of Fair Employment and Housing has filed a civil rights suit against him for numerous work condition, work issues, um, uh, most of them racist, uh, carving initials, carving the N-word into equipment, into walls, into latrine walls, uh, uh, disparaging comments handling African-American employees differently in terms of discrimination and, um, and uh, firings and discipline. Uh, the, according to DFEH, they've had hundreds of complaints over the last 10 years. And this is sort of the culmination of a lot of things. And I should point out, uh, I saw that a couple of months ago, two, three months ago, they got fined, uh, Tesla got fined $137 million dollars there was a judgment to one worker, an African-American woman, who $137 million, and there are a slew of other lawsuits out there. So that's that's our choice this time. Tim, what do you think? I think that woman who just got the $137 million from, uh, from Elon Musk, she could easily fund this ballot initiative for <laughs> But uh, I'll turn this over to... Uh, to Samantha, you know, what do you think about Elon Musk's week, or, would, or is there someone else you could think of? I personally wonder, really, if uh, if Secretary of the Senate and uh, Deborah Graver on the Assembly side, if they might have had the worst week. I mean, I'm sure that their bosses right now are telling them to get this the hell off of the internet. But but Elon Musk, you know, it's he's an easy he's an easy gong to ring. So well, some of you both had bad weeks, but Elon Musk, number one, is anyone surprised, right? When they reported sexual harassment in Tesla, um, the response of leadership was to ask women to strap cameras to themselves and walk around so they could witness the harassment, right? I mean, this is not, these issues have long not been taken seriously there. Um, I do think it's funny that he was, um, you know, telling some of our constitutional officers, or at least one of them to resign last week. And that was met with, um, another lawsuit, you know, for Tesla with the attorney general's office. But yeah, I mean, I, I think he gets to cry in his billion dollars at the end of the day. Elon Musk's probably going to be fine. Um, $137 million is like French fry money for Elon Musk. Um, but if I'm, if I'm leadership staff in the Senate or the assembly right now, um, I, I imagine those people are under enormous pressure um, both to, 
address the issue, address the grievances, um, but probably not necessarily empowered to stay, change the status quo um, very much in terms of why those grievances are being created. And I can only imagine how unempowering that would feel. So that to me feels like a pretty bad week. Great. Samantha, thank you so much. Samantha Corbin, Tim Foster. Thank Thanks, you. John. And uh, this is John Howard saying we will see you and talk to you next time around. Tim, see you later. Samantha Corbin. Corbin Thanks, thank Tim. Thanks, John. And uh, it's John Howard saying, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.